Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm a host here on the Gist of Freedom. Tonight's show features two individuals, Mr. William Katz, Arthur, who specializes in the history of Afro-Indians out of the Seminole Nation, and he will be joined by Pompey Mexico, who is a descendant of those mixed-blood um, Seminole Indians who uh, fought the United States to a standstill in Florida, made their way to Mexico, and uh, Mr. William Katz has written over 40 books uh, relative to um, this phenomenon, this unknown history of Afro-American slash mixed blood Indians. His website is William Katz, that's K-A-T-Z dot com. By the way, that's William L. Katz, K-A-T-Z dot com. Are you there, Mr. Katz? Yes, I am, Preston. And uh, is your guest, Mr. Pompey Fixico, has he joined you yet? Pompey, are you on? Yes, I'm here, Mr. Preston, and very happy to be here. Great. Well, gentlemen, I'm going to turn the airway over to you two, and um, we are eagerly awaiting to hear this information that you have to present to our audience tonight. Um, Hold on here just a second. Okay. Take it away, guys. It's all yours. Okay, fine. Uh, What we'd like to do tonight, uh, Pompey and I would like to talk primarily about the developments in Florida known as the Black Seminole Resistance, or as Pompey may also describe it, Semeroon, which he will explain to you. Uh, Let me just start by saying Pompey is a direct descendant of of those people who fought in Florida, who were a mixture of escaped African slaves, escaped Native Americans who were enslaved, and Seminole, people from the Seminole Nation, which was a break-off segment of the Creek Nation, that headed south into Florida from, I believe it was Alabama, 
when they found themselves not living at ease under the Creek Nation. And uh, we're going to talk about it from two points of view. One is the historical, and uh, Pompey is going to fill in with evidence of his family, some of which he has just recently confirmed, and I'll talk about that, and about his Semeroon Historical Society. And together, he's, by the way, calling in from California. I'm calling in from New York City. So we hope this juggling act will work, and we ask the uh, those listening to kind of bear with us as we go on. Let, let me just start it by saying the phenomena of two peoples of color getting together in the Americas begins as far as we can trace it. It's probably earlier. Uh, certainly Dr. Van Sertum has traced it to the time before Columbus. I, as an historian, begin with the written record. And we know in 1502, Governor Ovando of Hispaniola is reporting to King Ferdinand in distress that his African slaves have fled to the, uh, from, and he's on the island of Haiti in Dominican Republic, Hispaniola calls it, and they're fleeing, fleeing to the wilderness and they're being taken in by Native Americans. And he ends his plea with the phrase, they never can be captured. Now, I believe those four words uh, denotes the beginning of what I would call the first great rainbow coalition in the Americas. People of African and Native American descent, realizing they have a common enemy and helping each other. They each had wonderful gifts for each other. The Africans knew more about the Europeans and the Native Americans because they had endured the triangular trade, the slave trade. They knew you couldn't trust these people. And the Native Americans had something wonderful to offer the Africans, a refuge. They lived in their own villages. They offered them the comfort of that, took them into their villages, their families, and, of course, they were armed. So this is where the alliance begins, and it goes on through that. By 1687, you have African runaways who are uh, in St. Augustine, and their British master comes to find them, and he finally confronts them, and they look at him, they make faces, and they laugh at him. Why? Because Spa uh, Spanish Florida is Spanish Florida. It's not British Florida. The U.S. isn't around yet. And so they have freedom there. Uh, Spain has been taking in those slaves that escape, and Florida is a largely ungoverned place. Now, in Florida, by the way, when the Seminoles come down, the Africans who are from Sierra Leone and Senegambia teach the Seminoles methods of rice cultivation that they had learned in their African homeland. And on this basis, these two people begin to develop what we'd call a military and agricultural alliance. They became really our first organized freedom fighters. They became become the strongest branch of the Underground Railroad that we ever heard of, and we didn't ever hear of it because of the fact that it headed south. It didn't head up north into safe houses and uh, famous names of abolitionists that people have heard of. But it was probably the most active, and it was also, by the way, the largest slave revolt in American history because here are Africans escaped, being taken in by Native Americans, and they're resisting slave catchers. And when the United States comes along after 1776, they're resisting U.S. troops going in as well for 42 years. 
That's the longest slave rebellion that we know about in history. And I'd like to then now report and uh, bring Pompey in and ask, first of all, if he has any comments about anything that I've left out or that he would like to add. I think it was a wonderful introduction, Bill, as you're up to your your normal, excellent, outstanding self on that. And, no, I have nothing to add on that. It was uh, That was wonderful. Well, let me, let me then go on to, to bring people along. <clears throat> so here's a situation. If, if, if you can imagine it, on the southern border, on the border of Georgia and Alabama, sits a peninsula in which people of African descent are mixed with people of Native American descent. They're armed. They're working together. They have a very friendly relationship they are opposed to slavery, opposed to slaveholders. And what does it mean then for the white slaveholders living in Georgia, Alabama, and the Carolinas? They have what they consider an impossible situation. First, there's a beacon light of freedom shining down there, waving in, there in Florida. And secondly, there's an armed enemy who is opposed to their efforts. So what you have from the beginning of the United States is an effort to end what uh, General Jackson, other American leaders are going to call this safe haven for our slaves, this beacon light that attracts them. And by the way, they're right. Hundreds and hundreds of African men, women, and children find their way to Florida. It's much easier to reach from the southern states, Georgia, Alabama, and so on, than going heading up north through all of the uh, rest of the southern states to reach, hopefully, the northern branches of the Underground Railroad. And this drives people crazy. There's a group called the Patriots, for example, that comes out, and they, uh, they're constantly entering Florida, trying to recapture people. And then they're trying to pressure the United States. Why don't you seize Florida? Just take it. And the President of the United States, in this case, President Madison, is providing them covert aid. But what stops them is they are constantly meeting defeat at the hands of this black Seminole alliance. Uh, however, they have one victory. In 1816, U, the U, by this time it's the U.S. Army that's invading. And they come to a Fort Negro on the Apalachicola River which has 200 people of African, Native American descent in it, men, women, and children. It's ruled by a African named Garcia, has a Spanish name, named Garcia. It's armed. The British have left it after the War of 1812. They have cannons. They have arms. And the U.S. Navy floats in. The Army is nearby, and they start bombarding it. Fort Negro is destroyed when a lucky shot hits their ammunition dump. And... It's it's largely destroyed. Most of the people are killed, and those who are not and who can walk are marched off into slavery. But this does not end the Seminole Wars. This is actually the first shot. And by early 1817, Billy Bowlegs, another uh, Seminole leader with African of African descent, has armed 500 people, and he's fighting. At this point, President Monroe and Andrew Jackson develop a secret plan 
to take Florida. They're going to provoke an incident. And in uh, eight, uh, January 1818, Jackson marches down, captures Pennsylvania, Pensacola, and takes Florida. And the next year, a kind of thin veneer of legality is put on it when Jackson orders and the United States purchases Florida from Spain for $5 million. Notice no, at no point is anybody consulting the real inhabitants of Florida, the people of African and Native American descent. Now, that doesn't end the, the trouble in Florida because it, it, they're trying to end this beacon-like and refuge, but the Seminoles are moving around. They're shifting as the U.S. Army and Navy moves in, and they continue fighting for about 40 years. Uh, that becomes the first Seminole War, that one that starts around 1819. And uh, there are, by the way, separate groups of 600 Negro Maroons. That's from a government report living in Florida about 10 years after it starts. And then there's a second Seminole War in 1835. One of the stories that uh, says triggered the war was the capture of Osceola's African wife. Chief Osceola is one of the leaders of the Seminole Nation. And this war, by the way, is unlike any other war up to the time. It cost the United States Congress $40 million. The U.S. loses 1,500 combat troops. And General Jessup, who has been in charge, he, he claims, he says, this is not a regular war. This is a Negro war. That's his phrase. Because he notices that the Africans, are, who are the translators for the other Seminoles, are also their most valiant fighters and most determined. Well, I, I think it makes sense if you think of it, because the Africans stood more to lose uh, than the, the ground there. They would lose their liberty if they were captured. So let me uh, just mention just two uh, people, and then I'll ask uh, Pompey to fill in again with uh, where his relatives fit into this picture. The two of the leaders that emerge at this time, the two chief leaders of the Black and Red Seminole Alliance, are a, a man named John Horse of African descent and a man named Wildcat or Coacachee of Seminole descent. They're about the same age. They were both born around 1810. They're young, vigorous men. They're uh, good fighters. And uh, John Horse, by the way, is a crack shot and a, a superb negotiator. And they're negotiating it, but some points, other points, they're fighting. They are very brave, and uh, they deserve, by the way, recognition in our history books, in our social studies classes, and for that matter, in uh, Hollywood movies, when they turn to the subject of glorifying American freedom fighters. Now, Pompey, would you say, how far back do your relatives go into this? picture. Do they go back to the Second Seminole War, or what? Oh, uh, they would go back um, before that, and if I can, what I'd like to do is uh, a, a small, a short intro, sure. and, and then just pick it up from there, Bill. It's sure. So, it's, you know, listening to you, I get amazed at the story, even though I'm familiar with it, but, you know, when you hear it, it, it is very exciting and uh it's 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 just great to hear the the truth finally come out. Uh, okay, my introduction. Racially, I'm an African Native American. Culturally, 
I'm an aspiring Seminole Maroon descendant. I call that Simaroon, and I can explain that later. But to the people of the Americas that see me on the street, I'm just another flavor of black. That's my little cute introduction. Well, whatever. But I have Seminole on both paternal sides. The grandparent families are Fixico, Bruner, Bowlegs, and Renty. Now, the Fixico would come out of, when I checked with the Oklahoma Nation of Seminole uh, early, they may be about 2001, and spoke to uh, Perry Bowlegs, the historical preservation officer, I was uh, excited to, because I didn't find out any of this until I was 52. I'm almost 66 now, so this was about 14 years ago. But I come to learn that um, the Fixico branch would have came out of, there are 14 bands in the uh, Oklahoma Nation of Seminole, and the Miccosukee uh, band, uh, at the time uh, that they were uh, in that uh, original, the historical ancestors, it was called Oak de Archie. But they were coming out of Georgia, as Bill said, the the Georgia, Alabama, the Georgia, Florida borders, and, you know, they were back and forth. And they were actually connected with a band at Totoluce Tolefa. That means chicken town, or we call it foul town. Now, foul town was where uh, uh, many people say the first Seminole War began when a dispute rose up between General Gaines at Fort Scott and um, Nehemiah, the chief of Fowltown. So that's where one band, a branch of my ancestors, would be coming out of. Now, Bruner, now you're getting into the Maroons. These are the black Seminoles. And the Bruner band seemed to have came out of the Red Stick Upper Creeks uh, coming out of Alabama. They fought, and uh, that contingent of the Creeks was defeated, and those that survived would have came down into Florida, as my Bruner ancestors did, and, um, you know, participated in the the, uh, First and Second Seminole War. This was uh that war was uh eighteen eighteen thirteen, eighteen fourteen before the first Seminole War. Now another branch of my ancestors is Bowlegs. Bowlegs, those were the chiefs that came out of the Alachua up in Georgia and this is going to be the Bowlegs dynasty, the Payne dynasty, and we're related to all those but Bowlegs. And they came out of Georgia. Now, Renty, that's a creek. That's straight creek. And they, uh, the historical ancestor that we have have uh, a record of is Renty McIntosh Renty. And in the family tree, it says uh, 1800 that he came here from... Um, uh, he came here from French Nigeria, 
which is rare because Nigeria was English, but some people say that meant Cameroon. And so when these families uh, came together in the uh, succeeding generations, when they were looking for a person, the Smithsonian Institution, for the exhibit Indivisible African Native Americans in the Americas, uh, my uh, uh, Smithsonian researcher and the uh, uh, Dr. Kevin Moore Roy, when he submitted the 16,000-word essay on me to them, uh, they chose it because they felt that through my genealogy they could tell the story of the Seminole people, meaning black and and um, and and by blood. So. Is, is that what you wanted? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that's a that's a fine summary, and people also, you know, can see how you know what the links that you have on on both sides of the of the bloodlines. There, we, we do you have any idea if your relatives were involved in? Uh, well, you you mentioned they were involved before the the first Seminole War. Were any of them involved in the first or second? Seminole War, either as fighters or as peacemakers. Do you have any sense of that? Oh yes. Well, you see, my my great grandfather, Caesar Bruner, known as Papa Caesar, in the uh, Oklahoma Nation of uh, Seminole, uh, there are fourteen bands. Two of those bands are named are, are black. The Black Seminole Band. One of those bands is is named the Caesar Bruna Band, and it's named after my uh, great-grandfather. The other band is the Dosa Barkis Band. Now, the funny thing about this is after the Civil War, when they uh, had fought in the first Indian Home Guard, Papa Caesar was an, uh, a staff interpreter for that, they fought uh, Confederate troops before uh, the 54th Massachusetts. They were the first men of color to fight uh, Confederate troops. Was and, that in Kansas? Uh, this was, was they fought them in Indian Territory. That's they fought what I mean. three Kansas battles. In the Indian Territory, right. Okay. While they were escaping to, to Kansas. I don't want to give you whiplash by jumping all the way to the Civil War, but it's okay. better for me to do it from this point. Then, then I won't move. So anyway, Papa Caesar, he's named, the band was named for him. But that band, when the, when the Civil War first ended and they came back into Indian Territory, the band was called Jim Lane Band after uh, Jim Lane, as you know who that is, well, who that is, Bill, Senator yes. Jim Lane. And uh, the the other band was named the John... Brown band, mm-hmm. and it was because some some of the officers officers of that unit had fought with and rode with John Brown, and they were of course the uh, uh, contemporary associates of Senator Jim Lane. Okay, now we can go back. Uh, definitely, uh, the Fixico uh, Mikasuki. Um, Band members were in the Second Seminole War, and uh, as I said, they were coming out of Fowl Town, which is where the First Seminole War started, you know. And so 
we have records of the immigration records where this particular group uh it I, it shows here that um they were uh, on December 20th 1842 while the Seminole War was actually um uh, you know not officially over because there was no treaty but for the, for in in de facto it was over but they were captured under a uh flag of truce at Fort Brooke and that was in 1842 now one of the officers who was involved with preparing their immigration to Indian territory he says that he talked to an older woman from that particular uh, band, and she confessed that they had been fighting so hard and so desperate not to be taken prisoner that they had snuffed the children under two years old so they wouldn't be given away. Mm. This was a very brutal, desperate war that I always think about that it's not something pleasant to talk about but it shows just how how uh, hard they were fighting now Bowlegs part of the family Bowlegs was definitely with the Alachua's uh, for the first under the chief Bowlegs so these were black members that were in his um, entourage or with his group and our family is uh, descend, uh, connected to those, and then the um, uh, the research shows that in Indian Territory, uh, Matt Bowlegs is it would be my great great grandfather. He was uh, had the largest uh, family of freedmen right there, and they also were well identified as as they went over into Mexico. And the Renty, the Renty side, Pickett Renty, has been identified and uh, documented in uh, Gary Zeller's book on the Creeks as being with the first Indian home guard. And he, he writes an interesting piece about Pickett Renty, who would be the descendant of Renty, Macintosh Renty, and the reason that I said that it must have they must have came out of Georgia because Macintosh was uh, that was the lower creek between the Chattahoochee and the Flint, more in the Georgia area, and uh, William Macintosh was of course murdered by tribal members because he signed the uh, the treaty uh, giving away so much land. So basically, that should give a yeah. Now th- this is fine, and you've actually l- led us into in some other things. I just want to uh, fill in a little bit. The but by the uh, what Pompey was also in- indicating was by the end of the uh, Second Seminole War, you have a a trail of tears also out of Florida as the U.S. government with under bayonet, but after. Uh, convincing the Seminoles they will not have to give up their black brothers and sisters, uncles, aunts, mothers, fathers, and children, that they will put them on land out in Oklahoma, which, as Pompey indicated, is called the Indian Territory. And that's what Oklahoma was for a long time. 
So along with the Cherokees and the Chickasaws and the uh, Creeks and the Choctaws, the Seminoles also agree to move out to the Oklahoma Territory, which becomes the Indian Territory, and they settle down there. Now, Pompey has made uh, also a reference to uh, Mexico, because what happens in the Indian Territory, and I know I'm leaping over some things, Pompey, you can chime in on in a minute, but they find that they're persecuted. Sometimes they're being attacked by some of the uh, Creek uh, people who are seeking to grab the African members and sell them as slaves. And sometimes they're being attacked by white people out there doing the same thing. So in 1849, these two leaders that I've mentioned, John Horse and Wildcat, pick up this group of people, this nation, if you will, of black Seminoles. They lead them out of the Oklahoma Territory, through Texas, down to the Rio Grande, and with white posses approaching and shooting at them, they first cross their women and children across the Rio Grande, and then the men, uh, taking up the rear, holding off the enemy, cross, and they're safe in Mexico. I just want to add, because people don't know this, that Mexico had abolished slavery in 1829 under a uh, black president, Vicente Guerrero, himself of African and Native American descent. And so uh, some 3,000 people of African descent were living free in Mexico, and many of them escapees from the United States by the Civil War, by 1860. And uh, when John Horse and Wildcat come down with their band, by that point, their young men have been so trained in warfare that the Mexican government under Santa Ana hires them as what we call border guards to make sure the intrusions from the United States stop. And these men serve from 1849, I believe it is, to about 1865 as border guards, and, and they are some fighters. I just wanted to fill in that background. Did you want to add anything to what I've been saying? Bob? Yeah, well, actually, uh, they crossed over in, in, uh, into the, from Mexico into the United States on um, July the 4th, uh, 1870. Yes, now, that's when they uh, came back. Yeah, right. that and 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 I always that's always a very emotional uh time for us. Now, w- one thing that um uh, I should go back, here we go another whiplash. Um Papa Caesar who I mentioned was right. the leader uh, of up in uh, after the Civil War up in Oklahoma. You were asking me about connections. Papa Caesar was married to Prophet Abraham's granddaughter. Mm. And Prophet Abraham is responsible for being the sense-bearer to Micanopa and also the person who um, negotiated the Article of Capitulation. And John Horace also signed that. And now the reason that they were able to, when they were fleeing from um you know Oklahoma when there was still slavery in the United States uh they went to Mexico well when we say uh, gracias a la gente de México porque el dieron bienvenidos con los brazos abiertos we all have to learn that 
that's in Spanish we mean that thank you to the people of Mexico because when there was slavery to the United in the United States we had to flee to Mexico and the reason that they let us in because after 1848 the Treaty of Guadalupe de Hidalgo there was a clause in that called the um the foreign colonist clause meaning that Mexico would give land and 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 rations and weapons to people coming in who would bought, who would act as frontier guards on their border or on the coast and that's how my ancestors were able to get into Mexico so then they 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 become part of this kind of border guard, which is really a kind of a anti-slavery border guard, isn't it? Because they're keeping out these slave catchers and posses and so on. Mexico was the Mexican Underground Railroad. Yes, yes. <laughs> Except in this one, they 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 wanted my ancestors because they knew that they were tremendous fighters in uh, Florida, and of course, you know, Spain. Uh, was the first country to really uh, utilize their skills as a uh, cohesive group of the blacks and the Indians together. Yeah, no, I, I think it's very important that you brought this out because also we'll notice that the black Seminoles, or Semeroons, are they're not paying much attention to borders, except where borders crossing from one country into another. They don't particularly recognize that, but they do recognize friend from foe. And so they're moving into Mexico, and they're embraced by the people of Mexico. And this is an important part, because this is what we had that conference on that you and I attended back in June 2012, and you know I gave the, you introduced me and I gave the, the keynote talk on the underground railroad that ran south. So let me just add before we continue this story, as 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 Pompey and I are saying, it ran out of the Indian Territory into across Texas into Mexico. At times it ran, and I think you you can uh, provide details on this Pompey later on. It ran across into the Caribbean. People escaped to Cuba and uh, Puerto Rico and other places like that. And there are still colonies there, I believe, certainly in, in Cuba. And or, or people even then, and people at the same time, as slaves, that is, were escaping into Florida to join the Seminoles. And by the way, am I correct, Pompey, when I say that the Seminoles uh, really think they never surrendered to the United States in those Seminole Wars? They they just kind of went along, but they didn't really surrender. Well, first of all, they claimed they didn't lose. Am I right? Well, you know the uh, um, the Florida tribe of Seminoles, their their nickname is Unconquered because uh, they they say, well, uh, you know, we didn't surrender, and those who uh, Abiaca, uh, the people who went up in deep into the swamps. So far that the United States say, you know, it, it's not worth it. Let's get out of here while we can. And so, you know, the question that you ask, you you need to have an informed view of it because the the victory for 
the Seminoles is the Articles of Capitulation, the Black Seminoles, is where they are actually being, uh, uh, it's the first proclamation under Jessup's proclamation that freed black people by the United States. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, I don't want to say that there wasn't a f- surrender because, of course, John Horace and Abraham agreed to, it was a conditional, it was a, yes. uh, a uh, what do they call that legal term, quid pro, anyway. Yeah, well, it was, it was a conditional, it was an arrangement that they agreed to. Yeah, we'll stop fighting, but then we'll be free. And what was so wonderful about it is a little over 500 of my ancestors who who won their freedom against the United States Army, Navy, and Marine Corps under Jessup's proclamation. And it was a group that was, you had some, uh, what would they would have called Seminole Maroons, who had, they had, they had been free maybe five or six generations with the Seminoles. They had never been slaves. And then you had some who were what in those eras they call Estelusti, which is a pejorative word to to black Seminoles now, but they call them, it is a translation of Estelusti, meaning black man, Estelusti, who were blacks who were living with the Seminoles but who hadn't intermixed or, or or been with them long enough to be considered the Maroons, uh, that 500 you had, some of them you had also, which I feel is very exciting, at the time when the Second Seminole War started and they began to burn down the plantations and there were blacks who they said, uh-huh. well, you don't have no place to go, come on with us. And some of them even planned at a, an appointed time that we're going to attack and you burn the plantation down. There were escaped blacks who escaped enslaved people who were part of that group who literally went from slavery to fighting a war uh-huh. to being free in Indian territory. Now that's, that, that, see, that's quite an heroic story. And, <laughs> and I think, I, you know, we just want to point out that this is this doesn't appear in the history books. Mm-mm. This doesn't appear in our school curriculum. And this is the sad thing, because you have children sitting in class, whether they're African-American or white American, that have no idea of this. And they're, the only reference they're given to our freedom fighters is through men like Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and so on, uh, who also, by the way, uh, they were chasing men like like your ancestors and trying to enslave them and had them in chains. So here was a resistance. I I just want to jump for a minute back to the point you brought up of uh, some of your relatives fighting in the, uh, was that the first Kansas colored volunteers? Well, it was both. It it was, you see, when, um, when the civil war was approaching in Indian territory, uh, there was, all of the five civilized tribes split. All five of them uh, did participate with the Confederacy, and, and all five of them did have a portion that went to the Union, uh, you know, the biggest. Well, th- th- yeah, this is what I wanted to, to come in on, 
because I've I've done some research on this for for black Indians, and I've written some some essays that'll that appear on my website. We'll give that out in a moment. But what happened, as I understand it, was that a number of the leaders of these five nations, well, for the beginning with the the Creeks, were surrounded by the Confederate forces and were pushed and pushed into agreeing to be on their side. And they weren't really for it. And one Creek leader, Apothla Yehola, who was a, actually a slaveholder and in the Indian Territory, and he had a large following, and he began appealing. He knew he was opposed to helping the Confederacy. And he gathered around him some 10,000 people, many of them of African descent, others not of African descent, of native descent, and they started to circle around in that northern section of the Oklahoma Indian Territory, appealing to others from other nations who also didn't want to fight for the Confederacy, had no interest in fighting for slavery. And by the time he went around, they were attacked three times by the Confederate cavalry. And they finally said, look, we can't take it anymore. And they headed up north toward Kansas. And that's where we get to the story of the Kansas Volunteers. And it was a very unusual Civil War army because you had people of African, Native American descent. By the way, there's some white people in there also who you wanted know. to get out. They didn't want to fight for the Confederacy either. And here they meet a group of anti-slavery generals up there that, as Pompey pointed out, had fought with John Brown. And it was a wonderful mix. And they were fighting against slavery, and this was before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. But oh, by yeah. the way, I, do ha I, I just want to I do have an essay on this, uh, <clears throat> and the, uh, the Kansas Volunteers and, and the whole uh, glorious fight they put up before Lincoln emancipated anybody on my website, which is WilliamLKatz.com. You wanted to add something, Pompey? Yes, I did. Uh, that's a wonderful... Uh, essay that you wrote, I think you call them the Rainbow Division, the first Rainbow <laughs> Division, uh -huh. which I really like. See, the, what happened is, as you say, Opasla Yehola, he is he he was stalling for time in Indian yes. territory, hoping that the Union troops would come back. He had sent a letter to uh, President Abraham Lincoln, right, and so uh, and and in the meantime. Uh, you had those people, quite naturally, the blacks didn't want to wind up fighting for the Confederacy, although uh, there were some, many uh, blacks that were captured and, uh, you know, uh, wound up uh, staying in Indian Territory for the duration of the war. And then these three battles occurred. Now, uh, the first battle, the second battle, Apostle Yehola's uh, followers, they came out pretty good. In the second battle, you had a, a big division among the Cherokees, which was the Golden Circle. They were like the the hard, hard slave owners and Confederates, and the Pens. The Pens were for the Union. Yeah, let, let me just, you're talking about within the Confederate Army. Pompey's not talking about under Yehola's forces, but the Confederate forces, which included Native Americans. Yeah, go ahead. Well, right now, I'm, but I'm specifying the Cherokee Nation because right. they had the biggest 
contingent uh, involved in, the, in, the, in that civil war. And what happened is when uh, when when they attacked Opatla Yehola's group because it was a mixed um, opinion of the civil war, some of the Indians went over to the Opatla Yehola side in the middle of the battle. It That's reminds, what I heard. Yeah, it reminds me of that thing with the Mel Gibson movie Braveheart, <laughs> where the Irish went over to help yeah. the Scots. But anyway, so the final battle they lost, and they called that the uh, Battle of Blood on Ice because it was late in 1861. Right. The weather was terrible. They lost yeah. their wagons. They were naked. They were, you know, suffering from uh, yes. exposure. And then they went over into Kansas. Now, when they were in Indian Territory, they were known as the Loyal Indians. That was the fighting designation, the Loyal Indians. When they went to Kansas, they then became the first Indian Home Guard. Right. And then later, uh, when when the state, offered um, uh, military service, some of them, not all of them, became the first and second colored Kansas infantry. And when they went into the United States colored troops towards the end of the war, they became uh, like the 79th and 83rd uh, regiments of the United States colored troops. Yeah, and I just want to once again point out, because it really can't be emphasized enough, this was all before Lincoln adopted emancipation. This was going on. As a matter of fact, on Emancipation Day, 1863, the first Kansas, or whatever it was called at the time, had a big barbecue. They served strong liquor. The white officers and the black soldiers sang songs together. And the black soldiers particularly announced, we are continuing the work of John Brown. <laughs> and, I mean, it doesn't get more dramatic than that. And uh, somebody should pay attention. By the way, I want to just point out to listeners, those who want the full story of this, there's a book out called Race and Radicalism in the Union Army by a professor named Mark A. Laus, L-A-U-S-E. And it has the whole story of these battles uh, out in the Indian Territory and in Kansas and the four, these formations that the Lincoln administration really didn't particularly care about and didn't know much about. And it's an, a, quite an heroic story. Well, let, let's move on uh, fr from, uh, from there. You had mentioned that, and, and this is an important part of the story, at the end of the Civil War, <clears throat> the remnants of this uh, band under Wildcat and John Horse. Wildcat, by the way, has died in 1857. But the remnants of the band living in Mexico. It's now 1870. Civil War is over. Three amendments passed to the U.S. Constitution, not only outlawing slavery, but granting full civil rights to former slaves, including the right to vote. And the Seminole, the black Seminole nation, under its chief, John Horse, agrees to pick up and migrate back to Texas. They sign an agreement with the U.S. government that their young men will serve 
in as scouts for the U.S. Army, and they march back in at, as as Pompey mentioned that emotional mo- moment when they cross with their blankets and women and children and pots and pans back into the country that once enslaved them and their promised land and their men go to fight and become the Seminole Negro Indian Scouts, which in the United States side now becomes one of the hardest-hitting units the U.S. Army ever threw into the field. And uh, four of them earned Congressional Medals of Honor. It's, a, it's an amazing story. Once again, I have, I, I, I have three chapters on this in my my book, Black Indians. But Pompey, what would you add? I, I'm, I know I'm being kind of quick. Well, what on I would what add to that, of course, Uncle Dub, you met in yes. uh, in, in, in Saint Augustine, That's Florida. That's William Dub Warrior. William Dub Warrior, and he was for years the president of the Seminole Negro Indian Scout Association. Now, I'm also a member. To be a member, uh, unless you are chosen to be an honorary member. Uh, you just have to trace one of your relatives or ancestors to the graveyard. It's it's a Seminole Negro Indian Scout graveyard there, right outside of Bracket uh, Bracketville, Texas. Right. And uh, what happened was when it, it, there was during the Texas Indian War, it got so bad until. Uh, immigration to Texas went down, went back. And then at that time, you had uh, William Belknap, uh, the Secretary of War, you had Phil Sheridan, and you had Ulysses S. Grant as the president. And they said, we have to do something because on that that war trail that leads into uh, Mexico from Texas is used both by the Comanche and the Apache nations. And uh, they said the Buffalo Soldiers uh, had an impact and and the elite 4th Regiment of the Cavalry under McKenzie and all of that, but they really needed a special forces for the Buffalo Soldiers. And they came down into Mexico, Captain Perry, and talked to, uh, my ancestors there in Nacimiento de los Negros uh-huh. about, hey, if you come back, we'll offer you jobs as scouts. We know your record, and we'll eventually help you get back into the uh, the nation of the Indian nation. But you see, it never happened, and the Indian nation closed down after one year as far as enrollment but they stayed uh, uh they served their country for 44 years mm-hmm. and yes they did win four uh, medals of honor which was 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 very outstanding but there's one little known comment that 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 I take great pride in uh, general crook who was uh, uh reputed to be the the greatest Indian fighter of the American Army, he was in charge of the scouts, all of the scouts for the United States Army that were Indian native scouts. He was in charge of that. And his comment was this. He says, out of all the units of native scouts, there is only one unit that is ready to fight native war and conventional war. 
and that is the Seminole Negro Indian Scout Unit. Yeah, let me yeah let me just add uh, what their military record was. They they fought, they fought in uh, a dozen major battles, a lot of skirmishes over an eleven year period. Never lost a man in battle, or even had one uh, seriously wounded. They could carry on out on the desert there and uh, on the, near the Rio Grande for days, eating rattlesnakes and canned peaches. I mean, the United States Army has never had a special forces that hard-hitting. This is like the Navy SEALs, if you can think back 150 years. Now, this is an incredible group. Well, I think we're going to have to wind down, Pompey, because we're getting toward the end. And I was going to ask you, when we, when you introduced me uh, at, uh, at that uh, conference on the Underground Railroad that ran south last year mm-hmm. in, in Florida, you also performed... A another uh, ceremony, a peace ceremony that I was witness to with my wife Lori, and could could you just tell us briefly who that involved and what that was about? It involved two Native American groups with African ancestry. Am I right? Oh yes. Well, this the Seminole uh, Maroon Peace Belt ceremony, or the Cimarron Peace Belt ceremony, and it's a mixture of the Native American and the African in that a, a peace belt, meaning a wampum belt, normally was a peace belt for the Native Americans. But this, what I created and what I use in the ceremonies, uh, from the African standpoint, it was a fetish because each bead had its meaning to it and it should be used um, ceremonious, in a ceremonious uh, manner each day, it can. It's also a memory aid for the colors. It it signifies the uh, article of capitulation. But in that ceremony there in uh, Saint Augustine, it was used as a form of all of that plus reunification. You had and who Chief, was being who was being reunified? Well, again, Eve Seku, who represented Yamasi Muskogee. Okay. Because you had the Yamasi War of, of 1712 to 1715, when there were many blacks in that, and they they became scattered. And you and and, and who was they who were they being unified by? Who was the other party? The, the, the other would be Derek Hankerson, who was representing Black Seminole and Gullah Geechee. Ah, uh, okay, okay. And so it was like 200 years of uh, being separated, and and we made a symbolic ceremony. Diane Miller of the National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom, she heard about it. We w- we thought we'd have mm-hmm. to do it at a park, and she heard about it. She said, well, can we, can we see it, be part of it? And I said, yeah, and she was so wonderful. She allowed it to be a part of yes. that. And on that last night in the hotel, as a result of of the beautiful, beautiful, you know what this is is. Uh, uh, we only have a few I'm, minutes. Yeah, I'm 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 just touched by it. So I, you know, just go ahead, Bill. But basically, that's what it was about. No, no, it, I, I I was very touched. My wife and I were very touched by this ceremony of which you were the central figure in bringing back, bringing these two peoples together who had been at loggerheads for so long. 
It was and it, it was just very moving. This uh, tr- as you call treaty of uh, 2012 in St. Augustine. Well, you know that was in our final dinner. What I did is I created based on the uh, based on the uh, the descendants' creed. We have to show reciprocity to people who had given us so much. So even though the 1871 treaty uh, in the United States says that there's no more treaties between the United States and Native Americans, I designed and made a unilateral Mm -hmm. treaty because of what we had been given, just pledging our love and allegiance to the United States and Department of Interior, National Park Service, uh, National Underground Railroad Network to freedom. This is our unilateral. This is us saying, "Yes, you gave us love, and we're returning love." And so, it was great. <laughs> oh, it's, no, it certainly was. Let me just wind up then by first of all thanking you for your really fulsome participation and and bringing the story and making this this history very real with the story of your relatives' participation and so much of this and going up to your own participation in this 2012 Treaty of Reconciliation that you affected, of which I, I was you know, part of those who witnessed it there. I, and I want to point out uh, once again, if people are interested in this story, there's my book, Black Indians, uh, and you can find out about it and also read my many of my essays on the Seminoles and other aspects of black Indian history at WilliamLKatz.com. And I will also mention that Pompey and I have done radio broadcasts before. We've teamed up before from California now to New York. And we are available to uh, be on broadcast if people want us to go on and continue this story that uh, Pompey has uh, so uh, beautifully uh, outlined for you. I don't know how much time we have left. I'm asking the host, but uh, you want to say a final word, Pompey? Yes, I would. Uh, my goal, ultimately, I would like for this truth to to trigger an all-inclusive cultural renaissance similar to the Harlem Renaissance, except instead of using the new Negro as the protagonist, the country will use the African Native American and it will be a celebration of our progress, and 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 that's what I would like to see. <laughs> that's well, very good. Well, this is Leslie Gibson. I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, I, I learned an awful lot. I know our listeners will appreciate it. And Mr. Cass, could you give your um, your web address your uh, one more time in the name of your book, one of your forty books, please? Oh, uh, it's William L. Katz. WilliamLKatz.com, or you can just Google my name and my website will come up. And there are many essays there. You, those who are interested in ordering my book, Black Indians, or my other books can do it through the website. And uh, you can read many essays for free there at the website. And you have wonderful pictures as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, Thank um, you, Leslie. You're right, welcome. Leslie. And have a great night. Thanks for having me. You too. Okay. Great being on with you, Pompey.